We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Okay, let us begin our Zoom presentation for this Wednesday evening. When we see all the beautiful statuary in traditional churches, when you see all the paintings, beautiful paintings in traditional churches, the stained glass, the architecture, the wonderful rarados, which is behind the, uh, the altar, the, the, the high altars, uh, the sacred music, the beautiful music. Why? It's all because of the mass. It all surrounds the Mass. I mean, the Sistine Chapel with the ceiling and the beautiful Last Judgment scene surrounds an altar. It's for the Mass. But the greatest of all these material treasures, greater even than the frescoes, greater even than the statuary, the stained glass, is sacred music. It is the church's greatest material treasure. And it's the great way that we can give worship to the good Lord in our limited human ways. This is what the church says about sacred music. Quote, the church acknowledges Gregorian chant as, as especially suited to the Roman liturgy. Therefore, other things being equal, it should be given pride of place. It should be given pride of place in liturgical services. But other kinds of sacred music, especially polyphony, are by no means excluded from liturgical celebrations, so long as they accord with the spirit of the liturgy. So those are beautiful words from the church regarding the great treasure of sacred music. In the Latin rite, Gregorian chant is, yes, another precious heirloom that at least in some places in the Latin Rite Church has been largely lost. A cheap imitation has been put in its place. What was at one time called hootenanny music has been now elevated to the music of the liturgy. Of course, now they call it contemporary music. Good Pope Paul VI saw it coming for when Latin was abandoned by the family of the Latin Rite Church, Soon the beautiful strains of chant would no longer be heard in our churches in many places. As Paul VI stated, we will lose a great part of that stupendous and incomparable artistic and spiritual thing, the Gregorian chant. So more restoration is needed. That's why it's so beautiful to have a Latin Mass here every day and to have our choir, our scola, because this is part of finding those precious hidden treasures and reviving them, bringing them back. And I'll end with just a couple of warnings given regarding church music by Pope Pius X, St. Pius X, who wrote a liturgical document 
And of course, most liturgical documents ever written by popes have been on sacred music. That's been the topic. So let me just read a little bit from a document, and I'll butcher the Italian, but it's Tra la Solicitudine, uh, and it's about sacred music written by Pope Pius X. It's a, it's worth, it's a worthwhile read. He writes, among the cares of the pastoral office, being a shepherd in his mind, is without question that of maintaining and promoting the decorum of the house of God in which the mysteries of religion are celebrated and where the Christian people assemble to receive the grace of the sacraments, to assist at the holy sacrifice of the altar, and to adore the most august sacrament of the Lord's body, and to unite in common prayer of the church in the public and solemn liturgical offices. So that's a huge duty of the popes and all the bishops, the shepherds, is to protect and promote the proper celebrations of the liturgies, the mass especially. Nothing, he writes, should have place, therefore, in the temple calculated to disturb or even merely to diminish the piety and devotion of the faithful. So those things which are somehow against the piety or disturb the devotion of the people, these things should not be allowed. Today, our attention, he writes, Pius X, is directed to one of the most common of these abuses, he calls it, one of the most difficult to eradicate, the abuse affecting sacred chant and music. And indeed, whether it is owing to the very nature of this art, fluctuating and variable as it is in itself, or to the succeeding changes in tastes and habits with the course of time, or to the fatal, this is interesting, the fatal influence exercised on sacred art by profane, worldly, and theatrical arts, or to the pleasure that music directly produces, that it is not always easily contained within the right limits, right? So we start introducing sort of worldly things. It's, it's beyond the boundaries set by the church regarding sacred music. There's a general tendency, he warns, to deviate from the right rule prescribed by the end for which art is admitted into the service of public worship, and which is set forth very clearly in the ecclesiastical canons, the ordinances of the general and provincial councils, and the prescriptions which have at various times emanated from the sacred Roman congregations and from our predecessors, the sovereign popes. And so as we introduce Nathan Hart, our scholar director and uh, helping out with the choir so much, uh, that's important for us to remember. The church wishes to protect her treasures, even her material treasures. And the most important of those material treasures is her sacred music. So therefore she writes a lot about this topic. So without further ado, let's uh, have Nathan, if he could, just maybe introduce himself and uh, tell us about your background, education-wise, and maybe your interest in sacred music. Uh, sure. I apologize ahead of time. My computer is telling me that my internet connection is uh, iffy, so... Um, I think you're okay so far. So, okay so far. Okay, good. Um, 
for those, I think most people uh, watching probably know me, uh, but in case you don't, I'm Nathan Hart, as Father said. Um, and uh, I currently uh, assist uh, the church as best I can by directing um, this small scholar that we have right now. Um, I uh, have been interested in music since I was a young child. Um, I uh, learned uh, Gregorian, my first Gregorian chant uh, in the seventh grade uh, when I learned the Vene Creator, um, of course, for confirmation uh, at that point. Um, I didn't know it was Gregorian chant at the time, but um, I realized that these little square notes on the page were different than the, uh, the music I had um, learned ahead of that time. Um, uh, at the time, I was in the school band playing alto saxophone, uh, uh, as well as, you know, knowing a church hymnal. I knew what um, Western music looked like, um, but uh, this is my first uh, exposition to um, Gregorian chant. Um, I graduated uh, from the Franciscan University of Steubenville uh, with my bachelor's degree uh, in psychology, um, clinical uh, psychology. Um, but before uh, I changed to that major, I um, studied at uh, Indiana University Jacobs School of Music, um, specifically studying for uh, uh, vocals, um, which was heavily um, geared towards opera. Um, Jacobs uh, has a very large opera program. Um, eventually, uh, not finding myself very happy with the culture, uh, the secular culture of um, the music program, I uh, entered uh, Franciscan University, um, their sacred music program, um, where I joined their choir, um, but eventually I uh, did change my um, major to psychology. Um, but um, I sang um, consequently in uh, collegiate um, level choirs uh, for my four years of um, college. Um, and uh, as well, I've spent probably uh, uh, about over a year now um, visiting um, or spending time in Benedictine monasteries, um, both here in the United States as well as over in uh, Europe and France, Italy and uh, Ireland. Um, uh, so really my exposure to Gregorian chant and the fuller sense of it came from the, uh, that uh, monastic uh, background. Um, but um, uh, I've been very happy that uh, outside of the, uh, the monasteries um, to be able to sing Gregorian chant, um, particularly uh, at our parish and our choir. So. And a very uh, great contribution that Nathan has made, especially this past Holy Week, uh, the tenebrae that we did for Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and, and, and uh, Holy Saturday, uh, the amount of effort that uh, both Nathan, also Thomas, uh, Thomas Michael put into that, uh, that tenebrae, but also the entire Holy Week liturgy. Um, just very much appreciated, and uh, the, uh, the, the scola sounds, sounds wonderful. So maybe, Nathan, if you could maybe walk us through, music is obviously important, especially for even for worship. What's sort of the history of uh, sacred music uh, in terms of the Bible and, and, and maybe throughout church history as well? 
Um, the basis of um, Western or Roman uh, liturgical music, uh, as you had said, uh, is Gregorian chant. Um, so anything that we might consider sacred music today has to be looked at in light of Gregorian chant and where it came from. Um, it really begins in scripture um, uh, with the Jewish um, uh, temple and synagogal um, proclamations um, that in the temple and in the synagogue, they would sing uh, the scriptures, um, especially from the Psalms, um, but as well as from the prophets. Um, and uh, Jewish chant in particular is known as Nusach, um, and it has three what we call modes. Um, and if you want to think of them as maybe in Western music as key signatures of sorts, uh, three modes, so three key signatures. Um, uh, whereas now in Gregorian chant, um, which developed out of those three modes, we have eight modes. Um, and so the church um, elaborated uh, as it were, and developed and fuller. Um, but we see um, singing throughout all of the Old Testament um, and uh, a heavily emphasis, of course, on the Psalms, um, King David being one of the principal patrons of music um, is constantly uh, singing. Um, and uh, whether it's tears of sorrow that are, you know, moving his, um, uh, his harp, uh, or whether uh, it's just utter exultation and joy. Um, we see the example, of course, of the famous scene of David uh, singing and dancing before the Ark of the Covenant, um, uh, which I hope to maybe touch on a little bit um, uh, further on in this, um, that we too um, sing before the Ark of the Covenant, um, but uh, in a much fuller way than uh, King David could. Um, and then of course we have our Lord himself. Um, we don't have uh, any direct um, record of our Lord singing um, per se, but we're told that at the Last Supper when they departed, uh, they sang a hymn. Um, and based upon uh, the Old Testament descriptions of the Sabbath meals um, and the re historical records of those meals, our Lord would have sang during the Last Supper. Um, there would have been scriptures um, and uh, um, kind of prescribed prayers, um, collects, as we call them today, uh, that he would have sang. Um, so it's uh, not a foreign thing um, to have this introduction of sacred music into the mass. Um, there has been sacred music in the mass since the beginning, uh, as it were. Um, and then of course the apostles um, took this uh, Jewish custom of singing into um, the uh, evangelization of the world, right? Um, and uh, it's from there that the early Roman church, um, directly from St. Peter, um, receives um, this particular expression of the faith. Uh, 
and it's heavily uh, revolving around the Psalter um, in the early church, uh, as well as, uh, like I said, uh, the prophets. Um, but there came the point of persecution where the uh, Catholics went underground into the catacombs uh, and they were silenced as it were, at least within their liturgical celebration. Uh, but a great witness uh, to the fact that they continued singing was that there are countless records of the martyrs singing at their deaths. Uh, and so while they may have been silent in the catacombs, um, when their faith was brought to light, as it were, um, by the persecution, dragging them out of the catacombs, then uh, there was no reason to be silent anymore. Uh, and now they could sing. Um, Finally, under uh, the Emperor Constantine, the church was liberated um, and uh, exalted as the state religion. Um, and in doing so, uh, the legality of the church uh, gave rise to the arts of the church uh, and specifically in singing. So now that our liturgies were public, um, there was again, no reason to be quiet anymore. Um, and so the continued um, patrimony from um, the fulfillment of the Jewish uh, faith into Christianity um, was now given a very uh, clear um, uh, platform. Um, and it was in the uh, 700s that Pope St. Gregory the Great uh, really solidified um, the repertoire of Gregorian chant. Uh, as we know it. Um, um, he uh, is often attributed, obviously, as the title uh, you know, says as Gregorian chant, named after Pope Gregory. Um, but St. Gregory didn't necessarily invent Gregorian chant, um, but rather he um, was one of the principal patrons of its spreading and development, um, the writing of new music. Uh, and so we see from him the beginning of this um, uh, really rather uh, fruitful uh, period within the church uh, of the liturgy, um, uh, which he codified. Um, oftentimes the Tridentine Mass is called the Mass of Pope St. Gregory the Great, right? Um, uh, it's his codification of the liturgy um, that gave rise to the musical development as well. Um, Eventually the Benedictines, um, uh, which Pope St. Gregory was himself, uh, would take this particular Roman music, St. Benedict in his rule, um, if you ever read his chapters on like the Psalter and the arrangement of it uh, for the monks, you see that it's thoroughly Roman. Um, it's very connected to Rome. Uh, and as a result, Charlemagne, um, well, Pepin the Short and then Charlemagne, um, uh, by a kind of official imperial decree, um, made the Roman liturgy the official liturgy of the uh, Frankish Empire. Um, at that time, there was different liturgies in Gaul, um, the Mozarabic Rite in Spain, and things like that. So uh, it was that solidification of the Roman Rite that really has given us the Roman Rite today. Um, and uh, part of that was that Charlemagne actually forbade uh, any religious rule that was not the rule of St. Benedict. So every official monastery, under Charlemagne at least, was a Benedictine monastery. 
Um, and that gave rise to the great abbeys of um, Cluny as well as to the Cistercians. Um, um, so there in the medieval church, um, the Gregorian repertoire was almost completely um, solidified uh, by that point. Most of it had occurred before the year 800, and then it was basically completed by the year 1200. Um, at this point in the Middle Ages, they start developing um, different types of harmonic techniques to use with uh, the Gregorian chant. One of them is called Faux Bourdon, um, which is basically, um, without getting too technical, uh, you know, uh, singing in equal parallels. Um, so if you have somebody singing on a bass note and then up a third and then up a fifth, everybody moves together as it were. Um, and so it sounds very different than uh, our modern um, uh, harmonic music, uh, as well as the introduc introduction of the organ into the liturgical um, uses. The organ had been used um, before that um, for many centuries. And of course, we know of St. Cecilia uh, being um, after uh, St. Uh, uh, David and St. Gregory, another one of the principal patrons of music. Um, she played the organ herself, um, uh, at least a type of organ back in the Roman uh, days. Um, but now it was being introduced into the liturgy. Uh, interestingly, uh, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, uh, who was considered kind of the second founder of Citeaux, the Cistercians, he uh, really emphasized liturgy uh, and chant in his monasteries, uh, which is interesting to think about when you see that the Cistercians were very focused on following like, an exact observance of the rule. And most people have in their minds that you know these Cistercians or Trappists are very focused on manual labor, on simply being poor and austere, um, and, you know, shunning the extreme liturgies of Cluny and so on. Um, and they were very strict about decoration within their monasteries. The only uh, uh, statuary permitted um, in the early Cistercian monasteries uh, was statues of Our Lady um, and the crucifix. Those are, uh, and then later on with the Franciscans, um, Stations of the Cross, but those were the only statues in many of them. Um, there was no painting, no mosaics. The stained glass windows all had to be of kind of floral motif, but they couldn't be of like depicting figures and things like that. So they're very rigid um, in an artistic way. Uh, but St. Bernard and all of the Cistercian founders um, and the predecessors uh, really uh, understood the necessity of Gregorian chant. And as a result, St. Bernard um, sent his monks all across Europe and um, uh, into Germany, um, uh, into the west of France, down into Italy and into Spain um, to search for true Gregorian chant. Um, at this point, there was a lot of variations in Gregorian chant, and he wanted to get to the pure stuff of St. Gregory, as it were. Um, and so we see kind of a restoration already um, being attempted in the time of St. Bernard. Uh, and then there's the Franciscans. The Franciscans come along, and the Franciscans, like the Benedictines, um, are extremely devoted to the Roman liturgy. Um, and the Franciscans, um, because they don't have vows of stability like Benedictines do, um, they became um, more missionary, um, uh, going to further places and um, also becoming uh, um, more easily pastors and things like that. Um, 
And because they didn't have necessarily land to take care of, um, a community could just simply up and leave um, uh, without any real legal commitment there. Um, so as a result, they spread the Roman liturgy um, even further than the Benedictines had. Um, and so uh, Franciscans are largely responsible today um, for the maintenance of Gregorian chant uh, through the Middle Ages. Um, the Gregorian chant, at least that's considered to be um, the authentic chant of the Church of Rome. Uh, because there are other uh, Gregorian chants, like I had said, that were um, uh, kind of ethnic. Um, the Sarum Rite, for instance, in England um, had its own form of uh, Gregorian chant. Um, so after the medieval um, period, we move into the Renaissance, um, and there we have polyphony uh, beginning to develop. Before you get into polyphony, Nathan, could you, would you consider like Gregorian chant, which I guess you're saying it has a connection with the chant of the Jews of old mm -hmm. in the temple. There was, they had three modes and Gregorian chant has the eight modes. Is it unique to worship? What I mean is, is that did, were the Jews hearing this sort of music on the streets that they brought into the temple or was it something purely liturgical and same thing with chant, Gregorian chant, is this something that was heard around Rome, or is this something that was unique just to worship? It was very unique to worship um, in both cases. Um, the reason being within the, um, the Jewish uh, temple in the synagogue uh, was that the, um, uh, the services uh, were all done in Hebrew. Um, obviously, by the point that it came to our Lord, the Jews were speaking Aramaic and not Hebrew, per se. Um, but they retained uh, the ancient uh, uh, melodies uh, of the Hebrew uh, hymnody, uh, of the Hebrew Psalms. Um, and so it's kind of impossible to say whether or not the original uh, modes were secular. Uh, within the Jewish uh, faith. Um, but by the time they had gotten to uh, our Lord, they were not secular. They were considered to be solely sacred modes. Um, and consequently, uh, the sort of um, chanting would have been completely foreign to the Roman ear. Um, it was not Roman in a sense. It was uh, Middle Eastern. Um, uh, and so what we know ironically today, of course, as Roman chant really is Roman, but that's because Rome converted. <laughs> um, it's because the Catholic Church made Rome what it is today. Um, but it would not have been uh, common to either the secular Greeks or to the secular Romans at the time. Mm -hmm. So it's unique. That, that's, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. So you mentioned the Renaissance. Uh, polyphony enters in. Yes. Um, we come into a point of Renaissance, which is uh, uh, both a, an artistic, um, but as well, um, well, I'll say an artistic development in general, um, but that's both of the technical and the fine arts. Um, and so by that, uh, I mean industry, um, there's a lot of um, development within uh, the technical arts, um, so such as architecture, um, 
which is also can be considered a fine art in some ways. Um, but music uh, followed suit. Um, and so there was an increase, uh, just as an example of uh, um, my clothing mills, um, um, the increase of trade with the Far East, um, silks um, and spices, things like that. Um, as a result, there came a sort of decadence uh, in the Renaissance period that had not been seen, um, at least to this magnitude in the medieval period. Um, and in the Renaissance, then they begin developing um, polyphony, which is still uh, acapella music. Uh, acapella um, literally means uh, in the manner of the chapel, um, which, but it, um, for all intents and purposes, it means without any accompaniment, without organ, without you know piano, without what you know harp or whatever it might be. Um, but polyphony is now harmonic, um, so there's lots of voices going at once, um, and they kind of overlay each other. It's, it's quite beautiful, um, but at the same time, it's not chant. Um, and the Council of Trent um, then explicitly condemns uh, excessive harmony and complexity. Uh, excessive harmony and complexity is the direct quote um, because uh, it starts to become distracting um, from liturgical worship. Um, and Trent puts a heavy emphasis on liturgy in response uh, particularly to the Protestant Reformation, uh, which is taking a lot out of the liturgy. Mm -hmm. um, after the Renaissance, um, we move into the Baroque period, uh, which is followed then by the Romantic period. Um, and there the uh, orchestral and symphonic masses start to take shape. Um, under, in Italy, uh, people like Monteverdi, uh, Vivaldi. Uh, in Germany, we see Mozart and Bach, um, Johann Sebastian Bach composing um, masses. Uh, and as a result, um, the chant starts becoming abbreviated and corrupted. Um, you even see in the Renaissance and in the poly uh, polyphonic composers. So one of the great and famous ones is Palestrina. Um, Palestrina was a spiritual son of St. Philip Neri. Um, he composed uh, just an immense uh, body of music. Um, but uh, every chant scholar, uh, not chant scholar, but... Um, of those that I read, every chant scholar agrees that uh, he was no chant scholar. He really butchered, um, Palestrina really butchered Gregorian chant. Um, he understood the complexities of poly polyphony, but he did not understand uh, Gregorian chant as such. Um, and so through the Baroque and Romantic periods, it all starts becoming lost, as it were, and abbreviated. Um, then we get to the point of the liturgical movement under Dom Garanger, um, the first abbot of Solem. And there we see really the first um, kind of uh, spark of uh, Gregorian chant revival. Um, and it's under uh, him that the monks start doing uh, heavy scholastic research, um, which of course is very difficult at this time um, because of the revolutions going on in Europe. Um, many, many, many uh, manuscripts had been burned. Um, uh, I mean, it's just, it's impossible to, uh, to kind of overstate that. Um, really the French Revolution um, 
did an immense disservice um, to the Catholic Church. It burned so many of the historic manuscripts. Um, uh, I mean, it just wholesale, it burned whole monasteries to the ground with their libraries. Um, so uh, really what Dom Guéranger did is uh, near an act of God um, that he was able to do what he did because of how little he had access to um, in comparison to what had existed only a hundred years before. Um, and then uh, after Dom Guéranger, Pius X uh, gave, gave a great impetus to Gregorian chant, um, refocusing on the liturgy. Um, and he commissioned the Abbey of Solem, which was founded by Dom Guéranger, um, to um, recompile the chants, um, to critically edit them, um, and to give uh, kind of official editions. Um, just as an example, one that I have here in front of me, the Liber Usualis, which is a common book um, in many kind of Latin choirs. Um, this was largely composed by the um, Abbey of Salem. Um, and so that kind of leads us to today, um, where there's still a lot of ongoing uh, research um, by monasteries um, and universities throughout the world in order to try to uh, preserve uh, manuscripts as well as discovering new ones uh, to better, get a better understanding of uh, what Gregorian chant really sounded like um, in the medieval period um, and in the early church. Um, by the way, we can be very confident that what it sounds like today um, is what it sounded like. Um, there's just with slight variations perhaps, um, but in any case, always trying to go back to the original sources um, that these um, beautiful pieces of music came from. So I guess when you think about the ideal sacred music, it's chant and polyphony that's not too excessive. I think right? right. that would be the, yeah. sort of the true nature of sacred music. Yeah. Um, very good. So having gone through like the history, um, what about um, music in terms of how it touches the soul of man? Um, maybe yeah, it's some of the, the beauty of music for the, for the human soul. Yeah. Um, philosophers have been talking about music since day one. Um, one of the reasons being that music is just inherent to every culture and place, right? Every single uh, culture um, for good and for bad uh, has music. Um, uh, one of the reasons being is that uh, it's one of the highest, ex it is the highest expression of the human mind, um, artistically speaking. Um, the and the reason being is that words are the best we can do to convey um, a truth that we understand. Um, so besides, you know, divine infusion of knowledge, um, we learn things by our senses. And as a result, in order to best uh, describe that to somebody else, we do it by speaking. Of course, nowadays we do it by writing, but really writing is just a material form of, you know, speech. Um, and then we add music to that and it elevates it to the point of adding um, kind of an emotion um, as well as a, um, uh, a beauty and an artistry to the truth that we're trying to convey. And Boethius, who was a Roman um, 
politician uh, back in the fourth century. He was a pagan, um, but he uh, stated that music was the um, had the most effect on the morality of the people at the time. And he says the reason is, uh, for there is no greater path whereby instruction comes to the mind than through the ear. Um, it's funny, he gives an example of somebody named Timothy the Molessian um, in Greece. And Timothy the Molessian uh, came into uh, the Greek uh, state of Sparta uh, and started teaching music to um, the children and all of the people were happy with Timothy um, until he added an extra string onto his lyre um, and he started uh, having more and more complex uh, harmonies in the, um, the harp and uh, the music and as a result the people um, expelled him from the state of Sparta um, basically for corrupting the youth um, and the corruption um, seems kind of humorous to us today. You know, he added an extra string and he gets kicked out of the state. Um, but really, the, the Spartans understood that um, the more people try to, or the more people kind of get invested into the music, emotionally speaking, the more dangerous it becomes. Um, that it becomes less about the mind and more about the body. Um, and the Spartans were not... Um, anxious to uh, have the intellectual life of their children degrade into, um, you know, kind of pure emotionalism. Uh, and that was the reason that they gave him the boot. Um, but it affects our appetites um, and our prudence. Um, and I think it's interesting that the connection between prudence and the arts, that um, prudence is, um, as St. Thomas at least describes it, recta ratio in action, that it's right reason in action. Um, and then art, he calls recta ratio factibilis, right reason in production or right reason in the making, um, right reason making something. Um, and that's art. Um, and so if something uh, is not made by right reason, but it's made by a corrupted reason, by error, and it comes out, um, it's not true art. Um, and as a result, the fine arts are supposed to dispose man towards virtue. If a man does not increase uh, in virtue by the arts, there's something wrong, either on the part of the recipient of the art um, or on the part of the art itself. And this gets to the point um, that um, it's, it's a cliche a phrase and it's a horrible phrase because it's not true in the least, that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. We hear it all the time. That something's beautiful simply because I think it is. Um, and that's not what beauty is. Beauty requires philosophically integrity, clarity, um, and harmony. Um, these are the three principles that Thomas, St. Thomas Aquinas holds on to for beauty. Um, and if it doesn't have those things, it's not beautiful. Um, so when you go to a beautiful palace in France, for instance, um, I believe it's their um, museum of uh, war history or something uh, like that. Um, it's a fantastic classical uh, structure. Um, and then, of course, in the mid-1900s, they built this giant 
what looks like a shard of glass coming out of the top of this building. So you have this nice rectangular classical building and then this giant jab of um, metal and glass coming out of the top of it. Um, and the artist's point, um, his intention was to disturb the people that saw it. He wanted to cause them to feel uneasy. Um, and that's exactly what we're dealing with today uh, in art. Um, it's not art at all. Um, in fact, it's kind of an anti-art. It's trying to um, convolute um, real beauty into something that is um, uh, kind of banal at best um, or diabolic at worst. Uh, and as a result, um, when we look at singing, um, there's this combination of the beauty that's necessary in art, uh, as well as the language. Um, and of course, within the Latin church, we have Latin as our principal language. Um, and the purpose of it is not pleasure. Even if it causes pleasure, the end of it is not pleasure. The end of it is devotion. Um, at least on our side, that's what it ought to inspire in us. That uh, if we hear Gregorian chant and we find it pleasing, that's okay. But that's not the good that we're ultimately supposed to be receiving from it on our end. It's supposed to be an increase of devotion. But what's more than that is that it's not about us. It's about God. Um, and this is what sets sacred music, of course, apart from secular music. Um, that secular music also ought to rightly order us towards virtue. Um, uh, secular music ought to um, uh, increase our intellect and not be solely for our pleasure, even if we do get some pleasure uh, out of it. Um, but the ultimate purpose of Gregorian chant, of sacred music in general, um, is that aim towards God. Um, and consequently, there has to be this unison of heart and mouth, right? And this unison of what we are uh, saying with what we truly believe. Um, and uh, this is constantly reiterated by the saints. Um, uh, it's, it's in scripture itself, um, and uh, it's in the rule of St. Benedict um, that our uh, tongue, or our heart ought to be in unison with our tongue. Um, it's interesting uh, as well, uh, St. Jerome points out um, the correction of theatrical singing in the liturgy, um, that the liturgy is not a theater. And this is Jerome in the 400s saying, don't turn the liturgy into your own you know, egotistical um, stage. Um, and I wanted to give a quick um, musical example, uh, if I could, um, of this sort of theatrical uh, you know, theatrics um, in music. Um, we, I was saying earlier um, that, uh, let's see if I can find it. While you're looking for that, Nathan, I was just seeing how Nathan pointed out how Jerome was concerned about the excessive nature of some of these musical pieces being brought into the liturgy. And of course, that's what uh, Trent was concerned with it. Use the word excessive uh, uh, harmony and complexity, um, and of course, Pius X, when I began this particular uh, sort of Zoom presentation, spoke about the intrusion of excessive sort of types of music and, of course, profane elements 
entering into the sacred liturgy. So mm-hmm. like the church is constantly governing liturgically, especially music. It seems like liturgical documents are written about music. Yeah. So interesting. Uh, even Jerome uh, saw some of this happening way back when. So, yeah, um, I, I using, I'm using in particular, um, uh, let's see if I can move this. Here we are. All right. Um, so this um, is Claudio Monteverdi in the 1600s. Um, and this is first Vespers for the uh, Feast of the Assumption. Um, and this is particularly the Deus in Auditorium Meum Intende. So just listen to see if you can see where this might not exactly fit into the liturgy. <laughs> So um, that's the beginning of Vespers. <laughs> um, and then here um, is an example of Johann Sebastian Bach. Um, this is the Gloria in Excelsis Deo, um, Mass in B minor. Keep in mind that the Kyrie just ended. <laughs> These are probably long masses, is that right? <laughs> All right. Um, so you can see here, um, this is uh, a minute uh, and 42 seconds long. And this is solely the phrase Gloria in Excelsis Deo. Um, that's all this entire minute and 43 seconds is. It's just a continual singing of Gloria and Excelsis Deo. Um, and it's not as though that is the simple, you know, or the elaborate beginning of a more simple uh, Gloria down the road. No, every phrase is this long and this orchestral. Um, and as a result, the Gloria and Excelsis Deo alone is like 30 minutes long. Um, <laughs> And I think what, what Nathan would probably say, because he's an appreciator of music, these are beautiful pieces, but yes. I guess you say that they might focus in on the composer more than the creator. Is that sort of the... <laughs> well, exactly. And it's something that you would expect to like hear walking, like um, as the king enters into his palace um, and you, know, you have uh, the courts greeting him and things like that. Um, but the question is, does, uh, is this a rendering of worship to God? Um, obviously, yes, there's a very clear um, giving of all one's artistic abilities to God. Um, but does it also fit the bill of increasing devotion? Um, and I would be hard pressed to believe that 
the average person is compelled to pray during that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that we um, enjoy, uh, and it's something that m- might even move us in a spiritual sense. Um, but are we praying um, for all 30 minutes of the orchestral Gloria in Excelsis Deo? Um, uh, you can tell that it, it, they're almost making liturgy into something for elites. Um, and uh, that's, uh, Gregorian chant uh, kind of sets the stage for saying that the liturgy uh, is meant for the worship of God, but to be done by everybody. Um, and so Gregorian chant has a certain poverty to it um, in its simplicity. Um, but as a result, it, uh, it has an accessibility uh, for the spiritual life, so to say. Hmm. Um, and just as a kind of quick um, uh, summary on what music, the three kind of components of music, there's melody, harmonies, and rhythm. Um, and what those effects on the kind of human person, uh, the melody kind of more directs the intellect and the mind. It's a very kind of... Um, Uh, intellectual um, piece of the part of the music and the harmony kind of adds to the emotions right that when we have something that is solely melodic um, then uh, for instance in that Gloria and Excelsis Deo if you heard what the people the choir was singing it was some something along the lines of Gloria in Excelsis Deo Gloria and and so on Um, are you listening to that? <laughs> the likelihood is no, you're not listening to them just singing the same note of Gloria in Excelsis Deo, right? You're listening to all of the, the trumpets blaring and the, you know, the violins going at it. Um, um, and so harmony adds to the emotions, whereas melody is supposed to be the core of music. Um, and so when things start getting away from the melody and start being focused on the harmony, um, that's when you know that things are starting to go down um, towards um, more base things. In particular, here is the emotional level. Emotions have their purposes, um, but they are not everything. Um, and they ought to be subjected to the intellect. Um, and then we get down into rhythm. Um, and there, the emphasis is kind of on the body. Our body is rhythmic. Uh, our heart is constantly beating, right? Um, we are constantly breathing in and out. Um, uh, when we blink, there's a certain rhythm to it, right? Uh, we're constantly in rhythm. Um, but when things are unnatural rhythms, things like syncopation, um, which I know have been talked about you know, in, in other places um, people might be familiar with, but um, it lends towards um, a focusing on the body, right? There's this jolting effect of the um, uh, syncopation. Um, so the rhythm must be subject to harmony and harmony must be subject to melody. And when these things start getting inverted, then you start seeing really what is now most secular music today, mm-hmm. which is focusing on a rhythm. And people wonder why do we hear so much rap music as we drive down the street you know people are just blaring it out of their cars like why is the youth so into this rap um there's no artistic merit in it at all um you so- mean kanye kanye isn't a genius <laughs> well i don't know if you classify himself under that genre but i would not classify him as the um uh, palestrina um 
but for the youth, um, for anybody, rap um, and that sort of music is extremely rhythmic and extremely bodily. Um, and so that's why if you take out the rapper and you just like mute the music and you listen to the person who's rapping along with them in their car, the person sounds horrible. You know, they're just spitting out words and stuff and there's no melody whatsoever. Um, and people wonder why we can't sing today. Um, it's because that's what we're listening to. Um, so like I said, there needs to be that hierarchy. The hierarchy is going from melody to harmony down to rhythm. Rhythm is the lowest thing, um, which is why Gregorian chant is non-rhythmic, um, at least in the sense that there's not a set meter to it, um, like there is in modern Western music, um, nor is there necessary harmony. There can be harmonies, but the harmony that might be added is completely secondary and um, unnecessary for the Gregorian chant to exist. Um, so when you hear it accompanied, for instance, by the organ, um, it's good, but it's not necessary. Um, as opposed to other things where an organ is necessary, right? Um, in that entire orchestral mass that you just heard, you could not take out the instruments. It would be absurd. You would just have a bunch of people screaming at the top of their lungs on one note, Gloria on Excelsis Deo, and it would make no sense. Right. Um, so um, Gregorian chant then is solidly um, an intellectual type of music. And it might be one of the reasons why people are um, not as perhaps inclined to it um, as other pieces of music that they might hear in church. They might like the polyphony more than they like the, uh, the Gregorian chant, but that's because polyphony has harmony to it and it appeals more to our emotions than Gregorian chant does. Um, but I'll talk a little bit um, later as to why the Gregorian chant ought to be influencing um, us more than the polyphony we might hear. Um, and I wanted to kind of quickly remark how Gregorian chant is extremely um, united to the church and specifically by talking about it in light of the four marks of the church. Um, the marks of the church that are, it is one holy Catholic and apostolic, right? Um, so, um, these are the defining characteristics of the Church of Christ. Um, how do you know this is the Church of Christ? Is it one? Is it holy? Is it Catholic? And is it apostolic? If so, it is the Church of Christ, right? Um, and similarly in Gregorian chant, you see that it's one uh, in the sense that uh, it's pure melody. Everybody must sing in unison um, that it is uh, given to us um, as it were, by decree of the Pope himself, um, coming to us even from St. Peter himself, um, which is what definitively makes the church one, is that unity to Rome. Um, and it is holy in the sense that it has never come from any sort of uh, secular um, processes, it was never adopted, uh, whereas other types of music were. So for polyphony, for instance, polyphony um, was using um, secular uh, harmonies that were being developed in the Renaissance. Um, but the Gregorian chant has always been exclusive to the liturgy. Um, it is Catholic, uh, and that it is practiced by all Roman Catholics throughout the world, um, which, by the way, is a beautiful thing that you can travel to any Latin mass parish in the world. And if you 
are able to sing Gregorian chant, you can sing the Gregorian chant there. Um, I've, I've gone to places where I don't speak their language and I sing uh, Gregorian chant with them um, because we do have the same language, Latin, uh, and we do have the same culture, namely Gregorian chant as our musical heritage, our patrimony. So it is Catholic in its um, uh, application to the universal church. Uh, and lastly, it's apostolic in the sense that it, these modes and the text come directly to us from the apostles and from the early church. Um, so it bears those four marks of the, of the church, um, which make it a thoroughly um, uh, important part of our patrimony. Um, and then I'll just quickly just mention, you know, in the saints, um, uh, the, um, the saints were constantly composing poems and hymns. Um, the great, obviously I mentioned uh, Saint King David, um, but there's Ephraim and the earlier church, uh, right? Um, composing hymns um, in the East. And then there, in the West, we hear, here we have Saint Ambrose, um, there's St. Hildegard von Bingen, which many people might be you know, aware of, um, as well as Thomas Aquinas, who composed much um, um, of the office of Corpus Christi. Um, uh, St. Bonaventure also composed many hymns. Um, and then we have it even in modern English hymnody where we have um, uh, men like Father uh, Frederick Faber of the Oratory, who composed many beautiful English hymns. Um, so this composition of poetry um, and the expression of it in music has been part uh, of the lives of the saints. Um, if I could just uh, ask you about that just for a second. Um, in terms of the place of popular hymns, mm -hmm. um, which oftentimes can be done the vernacular if right. they precede the mass or... Right after the mass has been completed mm -hmm. do they have a place in sacred um, music and, and, but then also do you think that orchestral mass you think there would ever be a place for that if it were like i don't know like very rare but some sort of real big like you know mass sure. you know um i do um I don't know about that Bach one where the Gloria is 30 <laughs> minutes long, um, but uh, on other orchestral masses, um, I would say certainly, um, particularly, I, I mean, I'm imagining here the, uh, um, you know, the coronation of the Pope. Mm -hmm. um, it is quite fitting to have a very elaborate um, liturgy um, uh, for that occasion, um, or the liturgy, um, please God, for the coronation of a Catholic monarch, mm -hmm. um, like in Spain or in Belgium or someplace like that, and hopefully one day France. Um, so it, it would be very appropriate uh, in those circumstances, I think. Um, but uh, still restraining itself um, so as to not detract from uh, the lyrics. Um, and like I said, it's like when you have the repetition of one phrase for a minute and 30, you know, and 45 seconds, um, consequently making one part of the ordinary 30 minutes long, that makes for a three and a half hour long liturgy that actually, if you had used Gregorian chant, would have been like an hour and 15 minutes, you know? Um, 
So there is a kind of a, a moderation that needs to occur there. Um, and with regards to hymnody, uh, they're good so long as they conform to the principles that I had stated above of the rhythms of being subjected to harmony and harmony to melody. Um, but um, we have to realize that they are passing um, and that hymns are going to fall out of use um, from generation to generation. Um, and so we see this uh, very much within the French and the German hymn. French and German hymns have been being composed since the 1500s um, and they change every century. Um, you know, there's more good hymns that are developed, um, but they're fleeing, uh, right? Um, and uh, whereas Gregorian chant is not, uh, along with the orchestral music, you know, it, the Baroque did not sound like the Renaissance period, nor did it sound like the Romantic period. Um, every generation is developing something kind of new um, in that regard. Um, although I don't think there's, there maybe are a couple, but there's not a whole lot of good classical music compositions today for the mass. Um, but Gregorian chant is essentially um, uh, the patrimony of the church that does not change, just like the Latin language. And so English is going to change. Our, the way that we phrase things is going to change. So if we take a hymn from 1500s in English, we might not understand some of the sentence structure. Whereas we take a Latin hymn, uh, as long as you understand Latin, it is perfectly understandable. Um, so I just think we need to realize that these things are not as essential as I think people want to make them to be. Um, so um, getting into that aspect then of the liturgy where these things are not necessarily part of the liturgy itself, the English hymns and so on, um, like the Gregorian repertoire is, um, the liturgy is the place uh, for the expression of our faith um, and it's the embodiment of both scripture and the magisterium. Um, and so we see in it a sort of incarnational theology in the sense that um, there's an embodiment in all aspects of the liturgy, um, including the sacred music, that is an expression of our faith. Um, just to give a quick example physically, um, in our own church, uh, there is a red carpet going up uh, to the altar. Um, and there before the kneeler or the uh, communion rail, there's also the same red carpet. Um, people might just think that, oh, this is a nice addition to put into the church, right? You add some carpet in to make it look, you know, uh, a little more uh, uh, fancy in the sanctuary. And um, while it does add a certain amount of beauty, um, there's also the deeper custom to a red carpet or a, a, sometimes a green carpet being placed there on uh, at the altar. Reason being is that the red is a symbol of the clay earth um, out of which Adam was made. Remember that there is the relic of a saint here on the altar as well. Uh, the mortal remains um, of somebody that is now in heaven. Um, and then the only other thing that, you know, that is kind of uh, there's the altar that is necessary, obviously, and then the things that are necessary besides that um, uh, really could be kind of, in, kind of, at least in a visually speaking, uh, necessary is the crucifix. So you, you have the altar uh, and the crucifix. And that crucifix is that mediation between God and man, right? Um, that is what the priest is doing in persona Christi. And as a result, the priest stands on that red carpet 
interceding between earth and heaven. Um, and in our own sanctuary, we have a blue star, you know, a blue ceiling with gold stars, um, that the sanctuary is a representation of heaven. Um, and that we, as the faithful, when we come to the altar rail, we kneel upon that red carpet. And we are, in a sense, now making our own sacrifice of ourselves. Um, this is what the communion rail sometimes called the people's altar. Um, it is where they make their sacrifice by giving ourselves to Christ, um, just as the priest has done in persona Christi of giving himself as Christ to the Father, right? Um, so this kneeling uh, upon the red uh, is supposed to be able to remind us of something like that. And so that's why I'm saying that everything um, is incarnational um, in that sense, that it gives, it's supposed to give us a deeper understanding of the theology. Um, and so consequently, the church then instructs us how to think and how to even feel during the liturgy. And as a result, the Gregorian modes, um, the different keys, if you will, of Gregorian chant, um, each have their own kind of feeling to them. Um, there is a kind of uh, somberness in some of them. There's gravity in others. Um, there's kind of an angelic sound to some, a joyful sound to another, um, kind of this... Um, perfection to other um, uh, sounds. Um, and so if we are kind of moved to a particular emotion by Gregorian chant, um, uh, it's important to kind of uh, pay attention to that. Um, and I just want to quickly touch upon um, the, the solemn mask. The solemn mask is the highest expression of um, the liturgy. Um, and um, we're very blessed to be able to have a sung mass every Sunday, um, but very few parishes are able to have a solemn high mass every Sunday. Um, the solemn high mass, though, um, necessitates a deacon and a subdeacon, those two sacred ministers that assist the priest at the altar. Um, and, uh, but it also requires singing. Um, if there is no singing, there is no solemn high mass. Keep in mind, you can have a sung mass without the deacons and the subdeacons. We have this um, on Sundays, but you cannot have a solemn high mass with deacon and subdeacons unless you have singing. Um, the church um, wants to retain the solemnity of this event. It does not want to degrade it um, so that you know, you're constantly stripping away from the liturgy. Um, and now this is what we see, of course, um, uh, in the Pauline liturgy, right? Um, that uh, you have, you know, 50 priests come celebrating and it's a low mass. I mean, for all intensive purposes, it's a low mass. Like there's nothing is sung um, except for maybe the canon. Um, so there's, there's the necessity to realize that this is the solemn ideal and that we need to keep it pristine. Uh, we need to keep it that way. Um, when we look at what is sung, um, uh, it's basically everything that's audible to the congregation. Um, and there's different uh, volumes at which the priest must pray, right? Um, so you see him silent at certain parts um, and singing uh, at other parts, um, which leads into then who sings. Um, and there's kind of three categories, if you will, the ministers, the scola, and the choir. Um, of the ministers is the priest, the deacon, and the subdeacon. Uh, and these three ministers all represent um, uh, members of the church, as it were. Um, specifically, uh, the priest represents Christ, obviously, but the deacon then re represents the apostles, 
Um, and the subdeacon represents the prophets of the Old Testament, the prophets and the fathers. Um, and we see this when they're chanting, right? Um, the deacon who represents the apostles chants the gospels. He proclaims the gospels to the nations. The subdeacon chants the epistle or the prophecies that come before it, the lessons. Um, when the subdeacon at a solemn high mass uh, at the altar, when he's holding up the paten with the humeral veil uh, during the consecration, he holds it in front of his face. And one of the mystical symbolisms behind that is that the, the Jews have not yet been revealed to who the Messiah is. And they maintain this blindness, as it were, covered um, to uh, the Messiah. Um, Again, just, it, it, there's just an infinite source of theology to be taught us by the liturgy. Um, so then there's the scola, and the, and the scola kind of um, represents the church triumphant. Um, we see this at Palm Sunday, right? I don't know if you remember, but at Palm Sunday, at the knocking of the door, there's some, the choir stands outside and the scola stands on the inside. And they go back and forth, the choir and the scola. And the scola on the inside is supposed to be representative of the church triumphant. As the church militant, that is the choir, and the church suffering, is knocking at the doors of heaven with the cross, asking to be, uh, be gained admittance, right? Um, so when you hear the back and forth at mass, like in the Gloria or the Kyrie, the Gloria and the Creed, the Agnus Dei and so on, uh, remember that this participation that you have as laity, um, certain churches have certain customs. Our custom is that the laity, you know, don't sing uh, with the choir. Uh, but nevertheless, the choir, like the altar boys, in a sense, is there to represent the people. Um, there's a representation of the people by the, um, the altar boys as they say the confitior, right? They're the ones that bow down, strike their breasts, say the confitior they are representing the people at that point. Um, and so even though we might not say it along with them, we are still be, uh, having it said for us. Similarly, the choir is saying, singing for the people um, in the congregation. Um, and so you have this back and forth between the choir and the scola, between the church triumphant or the church militant and the church triumphant. Um, and this call and response um, gives way to kind of a, um, a reception of the sacred mysteries from the church triumphant. Um, and this is why in um, monasteries, even though they might go back and forth every, uh, you know, every single liturgy, every week, the chorus as it is, the choir changes. And they have a little board on each, uh, you know, on one side of the choir stalls that says chorus on it. And then the next week, it switches over to the other side. And really, what's the practical difference? There's not a whole lot of practical difference, but it gives the other side the opportunity to be the choir, which is to say to be the recipient um, of the spiritual kind of edifications. Um, so there's this constant give and take, as it were, between each side. Um, and I think one of the beautiful examples of that um, in uh, the liturgy um, is the secret, um, which the priest prays, uh, because the priest will... Uh, uh, say the entire secret in silence, which is why it's called the secret. Um, and then he'll end it with peromnia secula seculorum. Um, and everybody responds, Amen. But if you ever stop to think about it, it's interesting that we just said Amen to something we have no idea what he said. Um, and there's a spiritual significance to that. 
is that we don't need to know what he said because the priest is acting in persona Christi, right? The priest is acting for you in Christ for the church, right? So we say amen out of sheer faith um, in him, um, in the prayer of the church. Um, similarly, at the end of the canon, the great amen, um, where the priest says silently, peripsum et calypso et denipso et, and so on, he says all of that silently. He genuflects and he stands up and again he says, peromnia secula seculorum, and everybody sings amen. Um, we, again, we just said on to the greatest mystery, uh, you know, in history, um, and we have no idea what he said. Uh, before the modern missile, we didn't know what the priest was saying at the altar, but we still said amen um, because the priest stands in the person of Christ. Um, so I, I encourage people to think with that mindset, how do I kind of fit into this? Um, and I, I wanted to quickly kind of give um, just examples um, as kind of the end here to um, illustrate the manner in which texts of the chant can sometimes be painted. Uh, we call it text painting. Um, the melody uh, gives an emotion and kind of an artistic form to the spiritual realities um, in the chant. So I'll pull some of those um, up here. Um, so one of my favorites um, is, uh, let's see here if I can find it. So this here uh, is the introit for the Feast of St. Joseph. Um, the text, um, as you can um, read up there, um, is, uh, let's see here. Um, the just man shall flourish like the palm tree, and he shall grow up like the cedar of Lebanus, uh, planted uh, in the house of the Lord. Um, and watch here as we hear the uh, flor, uh, the palma florebit. Think about a palm tree as it uh, oh, co uh, kind of covers with its branches. Um, and then also the next phrase, um, he shall grow up like the cedar of Lebanus, the cedars of Lebanon. Um, and watch how the cedars of Lebanon grow um, as they chant. And so on. Um, it's a beautiful um, expression of um, the church's um, thoughts on, you know, this particular antiphon for Saint Joseph. That Saint Joseph is who the universal protector of the church, right? Um, and as a result, he is the a connection between earth and heaven, like the cedars of Lebanon, and he covers the entire church like a palm tree in its branches. Um, so there's this widespreading as well as this massive um, uh, structure um, that is a, you know, a cedar in Lebanon. There's some of the largest trees in the world. Um, 
and this is the confessors um, that the church is talking about. And I think when you think about it too, um, it's really emphasizing the actual inerrant scriptures too. It's, it's, it's yeah. following the direction of the words as opposed to the, the music sort of going on its own, I suppose. Right. And on top of that too, I think that even in that sort of, it's very subtle, isn't it? It's, it mm-hmm. Even though you can definitely see that it's, you know, the growing of the cedar, but it's restrained, which I guess is very Roman and um, uh, not, it's not excessive, we'll put it that way. <laughs> no, it's not. Um, it's very virtuous. Yes. Here is the uh, communion antiphon for the same feast of St. Joseph. Um, this is the March 15th for both um, cases, the solemnity um, of the spouse of Mary. Um, this is the communion. Um, also, when we look at the um, liturgy, we have to consider like, uh, who is saying this text uh, here? Who uh, is the one speaking um, in scripture? Um, and be able to interpret it in that light um, and interpret the chant um, uh, in the same kind of um, breadth. So here the phrase um, uh, is beautiful. This is my favorite communion antiphon in the entire year. Joseph, son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is born uh, in her is of the Holy Ghost. Um, and this is the angel Gabriel, right? Uh, the church has given us this specific text, but it has given us this text at communion. And it is as though the church is saying to us, uh, as, you know, typed um, uh, imitators of St. Joseph, do not be afraid to take Mary as thy wife, which is to say, do not be afraid to take the church um, uh, as thy mother, you know, in a sense, that taking uh, Mary to yourself and into your home. Uh, for that which is born of her is of the Holy Ghost. And that which is born of the church um, by the liturgy is the blessed sacrament, right? Um, so we see this reception from the Holy Church, um, God made flesh. Um, and we must imitate St. Joseph in this manner. Uh, so this is why it's given to us a communion. Um, so watch this. Um, I'll stop it kind of uh, a couple of parts ways through. But here is the angel uh, Gabriel... Um, coming to uh, St. Joseph. So there when we see that um, it it starts off kind of daunting um, in a sense where it says, and you kind of imagine St. Joseph, where is this going? (laughs) Um, This angel has appeared to him. I imagine at least that St. Joseph would have been rather prostrate upon his face at this point, Um, um, or at least within his, you know, in his dream. uh, a great reverential fear of this angel. Um, and then hear the gentle words of this great archangel who is saying, Joseph, son of David, as almost a command, saying almost like God speaking out to Samuel in the Old Testament, um, waking him from his slumber, um, at least spiritually in a sense. Um, 
And then he tells them, do not be afraid. Um, so just listen to that again. Um, and then as it says, uh, and take Mary, um, and when it says take Mary uh, for thy wife, it just has this great exaltation of Mary, of the word Mariam in it. Um, and it's just beautiful. Um, so I'll just play that once more. And so there's a great resolution right there. Um, so there's exaltation of Mary and then thy wife, right? Um, there's a peace that comes with uh, the statement of thy wife. Um, and then we go uh, into this uh, of whom is, uh, or that of whom, or he who is born of her uh, is of the Holy Ghost. Uh, and we, again, we hear this exaltation um, of um, the, a, uh, the not whom est, the born um, part, and then of course of the Holy Ghost. Um, important to kind of look at texts in this way um, because they give us a, um, a very practical theology in a sense from the church. Um, it's hard to, to not be moved by that text in that context um, that the church is speaking to us right now as we're about to receive our dearest Lord in communion. Um, and there's such an utter uh, solemnity um, and kind of gravity in what we're about to do, um, but also at the same time, a great serenity, uh, a great peace um, that will be given um, to us when we do receive uh, he who is born of Mary from the, of the Holy Ghost, right? Um, so as we finish it up, Nathan, could you maybe give some suggestions to folks? I mean, um, you know, how Gregorian chant could be part, not just of the liturgy and, you know, coming to, our parish, of course, uh, the Sunday High Mass that we have mm -hmm. and other feasts, but maybe in their homes even, and, and maybe some resources that, um, that maybe they could look into that would help them appreciate what is the greatest material treasure that the church has. Mm. Um, I always like to look at the, uh, the home in a certain light of, you know, uh, as being the domestic church, um, that it's where parents raise their children in the faith, is where they teach them the faith as the primary educators of their children. Um, uh, and as a result, there is a great opportunity to teach them as well about um, the life of prayer of the church. Um, uh, and so in the monastery, there's an interesting kind of context where the table in the refectory imitates the, the sanctuary and the altar, that the, uh, the table readings you know, are chanted, that the prayers are chanted, and um, 
Uh, there's uh, genuflections and reverences given to the crucifix and the refectory and all sorts of kind of liturgical actions as were. Well. Now, I'm not saying, you know, you have to do that in your home, no. Uh, but I'm saying that there is a connection between the obviously sacred and the seemingly, you know, profane or the seemingly banal, um, which things such as eating, um, that we should sanctify our meals by praying, right, you know, before uh, hand. Um, but similarly in the family, then we can introduce um, children, I think it's particularly important, but as well as ourselves, you know, as adults, um, to Gregorian chant. Um, so just as an example of having it in the background um, of uh, while you're doing chores, like washing dishes or something like that, cleaning your room, um, playing some Gregorian chant, or whilst you're studying, um, it's extremely uh, beneficial that if you like listening to music while studying, uh, Gregorian chant is extremely helpful with that. Um, and then as well as while driving, I think if more people listen to Gregorian chant while driving, we would have less angry drivers on the road. <laughs> yes, true. As, as opposed to rap, especially. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think that helps the situation at all, especially there on I-75. Um, but, uh, and then as well in the family rosary, um, there's the, um, uh, the chanted, you could have a chanted Salve Regina um, at the end of it. Um, it's just a simple way to have a little bit of Gregorian chant in your home um, that, um, you know, you learn the English, um, very, you know, of the Hail Holy Queen, obviously, very well. Um, but maybe once a week or, you know, on Saturdays, for instance, or on Sundays as a family when you just pray the rosary to chant the Salve Regina. Um, uh, and learn these Marian antiphons before going to bed with your children. Sing an antiphon with, uh, to Our Lady. Um, and the Marian antiphons are beautiful and they change throughout the seasons of the church and it kind of gives us a context of the liturgical life of the church at the time, even in a simple way um, in the uh, familial life. Um, so introducing just little bits of chants um, uh, here and there. Um, in terms of resources, um, on chant specifically, there's not um, exactly a, a ton out there in terms of by way of reflection, um, but there is a, um, a good little book. It's not perfect, but uh, it is good. Um, it's called Reflections on the Spirituality of Gregorian Chant by uh, Dom uh, Jacques Ollier, as a monk of Solem. Um, and it kind of goes into um, some of the very uh, philosophical um, bits of Gregorian chant, but it helps you understand the purpose of music and the purpose of music in the liturgy um, and how it's, it can affect the devotional life. Um, and then as well, if you're uh, like a vocalist and you're a singer and you want to learn how to sing Gregorian chant, uh, there's a fantastic series. Uh, well, it's going to be a series. Currently, it's one book called Laus in Ecclesia. Um, Laus in Ecclesia is put out by um, the Abbey of Clear Creek. Um, and so it's a solemn congregation um, book, and it's kind of a practical, in-depth um, um, source uh, of learning Gregorian chant. Um, I know in some actually traditional um, communities, um, they're using this as their like foundation for teaching novices and professed how to, you know, um, sing Gregorian chant. Um, and then in terms of the liturgy, um, one of the great ones I, I think is. Kind of a, well, it's, it's kind of fun. It's my favorite. It's called Treasure and Tradition. Um, and you might have seen these around the parish. Um, and they're very, very good for the adult and for the child because they have lots of pictures. Uh, and who doesn't like pictures? Um, 
but I, I mean, I really mean that it's helpful. It gives you a very visual um, understanding of the liturgy. Um, and that is um, by um, Lisa Bergman. Bergman, yeah. Bergman? Yes. Um, and, yeah, Bergman. Um, and then there's another very good one, Nothing Superfluous, by Father James Jackson, uh, the Fraternity of St. Peter. Um, it kind of, um, it explains, um, you know, the symbolism of uh, the alb and the stole and the maniple and the chasuple, it explains the symbolism of the altar and the relics in it, of the candles and the amount of candles, um, of the different um, functions of the ministers in the sanctuary and that sort of thing. Um, and so if you kind of want to have a more in-depth um, understanding of that, um, it's a fantastic resource. Um, and then there's many others. Um, just to mention a few in case you're interested, the kind of Opus Magnus is the Liturgical Year by Dom Guéranger. It's a fantastic series, um, but it's huge. I mean, uh, so if you're really into it, um, I think uh, then it's kind of a must. Um, but then as well, there is um, the traditional Latin Mass Explained, which is kind of a synthesis by Dom Guéranger um, of the Liturgical Year into a shorter you know, work. Um, and then there is also the Latin Mass explained by um, Monsignor George Mormon. Um, and then as well, um, any of the writings of um, Dr. Peter Kwasniewski, um, who is a, a pretty well-known uh, chant, uh, as well as liturgy scholars in our day. Um, and then lastly, in terms of CDs or audio productions, if you want to um, get some of those, um, there's many online, but I would suggest the ones that are, um, are put out by Foncombeau um, in France, um, as well as Baru uh, and Abbey there. Uh, and then uh, Norcia in Italy, Clear Creek here in the US, uh, the Abbeys of Solem um, in France as well. And then Santo Domingo de Silos in Spain. Um, all of those are very good monasteries to support if you want to buy their um, music uh, directly from them. Um, but uh, Foncombeau in particular and Baru have a very, very good um, uh, um, production quality. Um, they're very, very uh, true to the Gregorian melodies. So um, I would suggest them to people to uh, listen to on their own time. Those are some great resources. Thank you, Nathan. As, as a final sort of thought, I, I've looked at the questions that people have asked, and one person sincerely had a, a, a very good question, uh, namely, despite this presentation and the, 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 the way, you know, this person loves the Mass, obviously, um, how can this person come to more appreciate Gregorian chant when he writes, or this person writes rather, at times I find it distracting mm -hmm. and I'm asking myself, when is this going to end? Yeah. <laughs> so um, there's reasons why these things go on, I guess. There's, there's some theological things we could appreciate, I suppose. There is. Um, but I think this is, um, and it's not necessarily to <laughs> return fire, as it were, um, but to realize that, at least within America, we have a very um, puritanical Protestant background. Um, and as a result, um, liturgy can become too focused upon what I'm getting out of it. Um, and the reality is that it's about what I'm giving to God um, and that the church has presented this as the highest form of celebration of the liturgy. Um, and it has done so uh, for the first and primary purpose of the worship of God. Um, that 
it does go on, um, especially, I mean, during Lent, um, uh, some of those tracks just go on and on and on. Um, Sunday at lunch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and then, of course, the Easter vigil, right? Um, the chanting of those. Um, but it's all for a sacrifice of praise. Um, that's what scripture calls it, a sacrifice of praise. If you're simply enjoying it, then there's probably not a whole lot of sacrifice going into it. Um, and uh, you should enjoy it, at least in part. But... Um, I think to myself, at least for vocalists and those who are the cantors within the mass, that sometimes it is nice to just not sing the mass. Um, sometimes you just want to join everybody else and you know listen for once. Um, but the, everybody has their part within the liturgy and, and that it's not about the choir being a choir, um, but it's about the sacrifice of praise being rendered to God. Um, and so when it does go on, I encourage you to, um, Take the time that the church has given you to meditate upon the text that is being sung. Um, and that in particular, um, for those long periods that where, you know, the priest sits down and everybody else sits down and then there's just Gregorian chant going on. Um, it's not meant to be filler music. Um, it is the prayer of the church that's going on at that point. Um, and try to engage in that prayer as best that you can. Um, and even if you don't necessarily feel compelled to meditate upon the words of the chant that's being chanted, um, use the time um, in preparation for the reception of the Blessed Sacrament, or use the time in thanksgiving of, uh, of the reception of the Blessed Sacrament. Um, it's time that the church has allotted, um, so I would just say use it. Well said. And I want to thank Nathan for uh, being willing to give us a, uh, a wide sort of uh, uh, slice of history as well as sort of the how music hits the soul in particular chant sacred music and of course uh, uh, sort of the, some some of the, the the fine sort of points so that when we go to mass the next time especially the high mass here uh, to sort of look at the text and to see how the, the music perfectly complements the the beauty of uh, of the inerrant text of scripture so thank you very much Nathan uh, We'll end with a prayer, and uh, remember, next week we won't be here, but uh, the week after, May 12th, we will. In the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Ghost, amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end, amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you. Thank you, everybody.